I just got back from uh, from Tropfest uh, last weekend. I had a film in the finals of that. Oh, well done. Thanks, man. Um, and I, I managed to get John Paulson to do an episode of the podcast. And afterwards, I just felt just this immense amount of gratitude because he he was willing to chat to me, you know, give me half an hour of his time, chat about, you know, some kind of some very personal things. And it's not often that you get to connect with people on that level, particularly people that you've never met before. So yeah, that's right. Um, no, it needs to needs to be more of it, I reckon, especially amongst men. I reckon it's uh, more of these kind of open, honest chats, the better, and uh, that's what we need moving forward as a culture. But we can talk about that later. Greetings and salutations, people of the Coming Up Next work, and welcome to this week's Ramble. I... I can't really believe it's the middle of March already. Before you know it, we're going to be celebrating a year of coming up next rambles, but that's still another three or so months away, and we still haven't hit a few other milestones. Like, we haven't even got to episode 40 yet, so what are you talking about getting all the way up to episode 52, Al? Well, I guess it'd be 53, because there was one week where there were two episodes, and who knows, maybe that'll happen again. Maybe I'll miss a week, or maybe... Wait, no, it would be because there was a week already where I missed a week. So, yeah. Is anyone else having a really intense start to 2016? Because, um, yeah, this uh, first few months of the year have certainly come thick and come fast for this Ramble Roustabout. Um, I'd love to hear how you're going with your year. Jump on social media and let's let's have a chat, shall we? You can find me on the Twitter at CunPodcast. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash CunPodcast. And guess what? We finally got on the Instagram. And guess what the handle is? <laughs> That's right. You got it, my friends. It is at CunPodcast. I'm going to be putting up quotes and all manner of awesome little sound bites from the first 35 episodes and counting well depending on when you listen to this episode it will be all the episodes that are released there will eventually be quotes from and speaking of guests and coming up next my guest this week is the man behind that sugar film which if you haven't seen do yourself a favor go and check it out it is an absolutely outstanding piece of filmmaking. You may know him from Love My Way. You may know him from Balibo. You may even know him from How I Met Your Mother. My guest this week on Coming Up Next, Damon Gamow. And there's one question that I, that I really love asking um, everyone and I guess it's it's unique to you in the sense that you you're an actor who's transitioned into filmmaking, which is something that I have myself have done too. And I, and I'm curious about where that kind of sparked from. Do you remember the first time that you performed or entertained in front of people? Could be family or friends or whatever when you were quite young or maybe a bit older, and you kind of got that drive to pursue this. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, 
I went into acting, I reckon, if I'm really honest, probably in my early 20s or even a bit younger, that really is a sense of seeking validation. I think um, at the time I, I was pretty insecure kind of teenager and so acting sort of offered this this line that kind of guaranteed a, a bit of applause every now and again if you were good or, you know, some kind of appearance in a magazine to kind of justify <laughs> your importance. Yeah. And I kind of really lapped that up at that age and um, really it was only after I actually got into acting and started doing it properly that I started to realise what it could be and, and understand you know, I guess the craftsmanship of it and, and the nobility of it when you are doing a role that you really love. But um, for me, I guess I was kind of spoiled in the, the first job I ever did at a drama school was a film called The Tracker, which was with um, Rolf Tahir, who's a, is a very special director and mm. it was working with David Goldpilil, who, as you know, is a bit of a national treasure when it comes to Aboriginal performers in this country. Mm. We kind of went out bush for six weeks to make this film and I'd never done it before and it was a really reduced crew and it just kind of was dripping in integrity and, and, and the way that a film should be made. And when I finished that, I, I was invited up to Ramanginning with David Goldpool and kind of spent uh, three years, sorry, three weeks on the land with him just living and breathing Aboriginal culture. No Westerners every, anywhere, no one speaking English, just me and him out there and his family. So that was kind of a sense of, wow, okay, this is what it can be. This is the kind of adventures that acting can open you up to. And then I probably spent the next three years kind of searching for something to match that experience but really um, didn't find anything. I went to America for a while sort of looking for, you know, again, sort of trying to ch chase this kind of dream about what I thought I wanted and um, had a few experiences there. I did a show called How I Met Your Mother and, you know, which at the time I kind of saw as it was a very successful show but... Mm. Ultimately, it was quite an empty feeling when I did it. And then um, I was very lucky to come back and do a film called Balibo, which was about the journalists in East Timor that were killed in the late 70s. And really, um, Balibo and Tracker were the only two experiences I've probably had in 10 or 11 years where I just genuinely connected with the material, absolutely loved what I did. But it was around that time in Balibo in 2008 that I kind of thought that, you know, acting really wasn't giving me the satisfaction that I... I guess it hoped it would. I think I did go into it, like I said, for probably more uh, vacuous reasons. And I did grow <laughs> to love it, but not, not to a depth that really connected with my heart. So uh, it was around then that I probably had a bit of a, a, bit of a spiritual epiphany in some way in my, in my early 30s and really started you know, exploring more about myself and the world and what makes us tick as humans and what is this reality that we're all living in. And I guess that really opened me up to a whole new range of experiences that I felt um, compelled to share in some way. I, I then was really noticing the juxtaposition of what acting was compared to things I wanted to do and say. So that really began the quest of, of starting to direct. And um, uh, I entered you know, a Tropfest film with a really good friend of mine and we made the finals, which was a great experience. And then I thought I'd enter another one the next year and, and sort of made this short animation video for kids that really cost only 80 bucks and, and it won. So that was kind of a huge turning point for me in my mm, life. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, the, you know, it was all the fears I had. Uh, I was so nervous about putting something out there and making it, especially the, the film that won. It was incredibly simple and open and daggy in a lot of ways and flew in the face of my very high, high, um, uh, finely crafted sort of persona of a, of a cigarette-smoking actor with velvet <laughs> shoes, 
who was a bit edgy and dark and you know loved red wine this was kind of the opposite of that so it really cracked me open in a lot of ways and sort of said right well, you know clearly it's resonated with some someone and, and people have, have related to what you've done so kind of keep going and keep making things and that's really what spurred me on to actually want to make my own film and and you know, more than that, just contribute in some way. I didn't want to just make a film. I, I remember being in a hospital bed with a, a group of octogenarians and they were all quite sick and I wrote a letter to myself as though I was 85 and I kind of said, look, you know, what have you done with life? Are you happy with the achievements? Have you, you know, fulfilled things that you, you know, have you helped people in the way that you, you want to and that you have the knowledge for? So uh, that was a real kick up the butt for me as well in terms of just get it done, you know, stop worrying about your fears and letting them control your actions in life, get over them and, um, you know, put yourself out there. So it's really all happened quite quickly for me in terms of that discovery and then putting it into action. But now that I've done it and um, obviously the response to the film has been so overwhelming that it, it feels like a great validation of all that stuff and I'm, I'm very excited to, to push on and make many more things um, that hopefully have a, have a seed of being able to help people in some way. Mm. Was it Nelson Mandela that said everything seems impossible until it's done? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a really great way of putting it. You do you 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 build up all these fears and doubts and whatnot, and then when you actually do it, you think, oh god, what was I worried about? It wasn't that hard at all? And mm. again, harking back to the Tropfest experience, that's probably what was so great about it for me is because I won. I was the next day. I was I was just this barrage of kind of derision and criticism came from all sorts of um, <laughs> aspects, of media and stuff. And it was the best thing that ever could have happened because it just made me realize that none of it mattered as much as I ever thought it was going to matter. It was my worst kind of nightmare came true, but then it didn't hurt me and it didn't scar me and I was able to keep going. So in many ways, it's strange to say, but I'm, I'm very grateful for that experience. And I think that often happens with people in life. You look at your Nadir and the moment where you think, God, I wouldn't want to wish that on anyone. And it turned out to be your crowning moment. Mm. It's funny your your kind of truncated um, Twitter Twitter I guess uh, answer of your career is in some way a microcosm of what this whole show has kind of been about is this kind of journey of self discovery from almost a place of narcissism to a place of um, giving and gratitude. Sorry, I don't mean to be crude. No, um, it's your, your spot. That's what it was. <laughs> and 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 fine and you know because I. I, I, I liked to pretend when I started this that it was a kind of, it was me chatting to these people or all of these amazing people in the industry to kind of share this wealth of knowledge with as many people as wanted to tune in. And that is certainly one aspect of it. But another aspect of it is that I want to, um, you know, connect with, with, with people yeah. who are doing amazing work and I want to understand how they've taken those steps for myself as well. Yep. And you know, have a kind of, I guess, a, um, continue on that uh, awakening kind of path in, in the process. Um, so, I mean, I'd love to kind of understand uh, when you were talking about initially what you were doing was you, you, you became an actor, and I'm sure you weren't aware of this at the time, um, but it was kind of seeking a validation, like you said, getting an applause. How did you... Uh, what was that like for you as a kind of young young man, um, you know, coming into your twenties, coming out of drama school, and getting this awesome role? Um, how, how did you kind of deal with that, and then transition out of that uh, mindset? Well, I think you, you know, it's that thing of hindsight. You don't realize it at the time. But at the time, if I look back on it, I think of how exhausting it was. I mean, to keep up that kind of persona and to really 
operate from that sense of wanting validation and trying to please people. I mean, it's tiring, you know, and I think a lot of people in the world do live like that in some way and they're absolutely exhausted because there's a real reluctance to just be yourself and and, and say mm. what you want to say. And, and look, our culture doesn't support that either. You know, we look at our leaders. We're just we're, we're led by rhetoric. We're led by um, oh, a great guy, Richard Dennis, calls it econobabble. It's like all this kind of speak that we put up, which are almost like shop fronts to hide what we're really feeling yeah. or experiencing. And, you know, you get even that on social media. If someone sort of really says what they think, they're usually shot down or, or vilified for it. So, you know, that... There are issues that kind of concern me as a culture moving forward, but I certainly um, experienced that as a young man. I, I, I just felt this constant need to impress and, and, and be seen as though I'm doing well. So on one half, one aspect, I was you know, probably very proud and happy for my ego that I was getting these great jobs. But um, you know, there was a part of me that was really enjoying them because they were very connected roles. But I hadn't quite worked out that balance yet. I think at the time I was quite skewed into the sort of the ego side or the, mm. you know, you know, there's nothing wrong with ego, but having small amounts of, of, of that is healthy. But I think sometimes, um, especially in the acting world, it can tip over very easily. Yeah, yeah. And people like to give you, tell you lots of things, especially when you go to America and you get all sorts of hot air blown up you and they're the best, you're the best thing <laughs> I've ever seen. And, you know, what is it with you, Aussies and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, um, I think I kind of, kind of got swept up in all that, but always had this other part of me, which I probably realize now was my heart, is... Um, sort of that felt a disconnect that something wasn't quite right but I just kept trying to make it fit and you know whether that's with acting or drugs or whatever it is or alcohol or women whatever it is you do to try and make the pieces fit at that age I was I was definitely a sort of a prime example of that and it was only once I got to my early 30s and um, that really sort of you know started to look at myself in a different way and really look at the the way I'd operated and behaved and treated people and the sort of the programs that I had playing out and you know, as for anyone, that's an incredibly liberating experience when you can actually really start to understand who you are and how you operate in the world. Um, there's a great power to that, um, a vulnerability and a surrender at the same time, yeah. but ultimately um, a great power. Mm. And so I'm curious, uh, when you, so you, you did you did a few films and then you, um, you got a, a um, role on Love My Way. Um, yeah. And I imagine that that was probably when you started getting more, I guess, noticed in, in, in the public kind of spotlight as, a, as an actor, um, as an Australian actor, I suppose. Um, what was that like for you in that kind of mindset and what's it like retrospectively? Uh, look, it's interesting. I, I, I think if, you'd, if you spoke to a lot of people, that it's all relative. I think that as actors, many actors are perfectionists. You're always kind of looking, there's no stability really in, in, in your work. So you're always looking at the next job. So quite often that can breed a sense of, um, you know, that something's not, it's never good enough. Like you keep searching for something. And I had a dear friend of mine in America who um, was an actress for years and she then got a job working with um, David Fincher and Steven Soderbergh at their production house in wow. LA. And she said I was doing readings for them for all the new projects and she said I'd have all these actors coming in that were just completely subservient to her, like treating her like she was the queen just because she was the reader and asking her, you know, how she, how they were going, was that okay, did I, did I muck it up? And these were Oscar-winning actors, you know, these were absolutely cream of the crop actors that were still not satisfied with what they were doing and it was yeah. a real wake 
for her. She sort of said, you know what, I, I realise that that's, you know, I need to get out of this because, you know, it doesn't end. You know, there's always a sense that you could be in a bigger film, you could be winning a bigger award, you could be working with better people, you could be recognised even more. You know, it's it's kind of, uh, you know, it's a bit of an illusion. So mm. even though, to get back to your question, I, I was, you know, I guess it was nice for a, a section there to start being recognised, mainly because it's an acknowledgement that you're getting work. But yeah, it never felt like I'd achieved anything or I was satisfied. I kind of constantly had this this need to go higher and higher. And, um, you know, I think that probably at the detriment to myself and, and other people around me, I think I went through a phase probably that I, I was fiercely ambitious uh, in, at a young, in my young 20s, my 20s, but mainly because I was trying to seek that validation that I thought the I would feel better the bigger jobs I got, and you know, and, and if I get did make it in America, then I'd feel happy. Whereas I think most people I know, um, and even friends, close friends that have made it in America, you know, it just doesn't mean anything. It's it's as we all find out later in life, but at the time in your young, in your early twenties, you kind of need to go through that process. I guess it sort of <laughs> makes you a better person later in life. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it gives you the foundation, I guess, to kind of then break the illusion and question everything in your uh, in your early thirties. Um, yeah, but you know, you you did go on as you said earlier, and you went on to awesome shows like How I Met Your Mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess just just quickly, what was the experience of that like versus, say, working on something like Love My Way? Uh, oh, look, you know, ultimately no different, really, and, and that's the thing you build up in your head that it's this big American show, and it's going to be all the more significant, and different, and then you get there, and it's just human beings operating a camera and acting in the front of the camera. There's no difference between Australia and, and there, and uh, I think you know, I, I came from Adelaide, small town, so I, for me it was like, wow, going to Hollywood, and it was going to be this really big deal. <laughs> Um, but ultimately, no, just the same. And look, they were lovely people. It was, you know, it was a fine experience. But I, I really got a sense of the, um, you know, it was quite cold process in the sense that America's quite different. And the only way is that there's a huge amount of producers on the show. So there might be four or five of them sitting in a bank of television screens. And then the director is kind of the middleman between them and you on the set. So quite often he's just relaying um, um, or her relaying messages back and forth that the producers are saying. So, you know, it felt a little bit perfunctory sometimes. It just yeah. felt a bit like smile more, do this, don't say that. <laughs> you know, which was fine. But I guess, like I said, once you've worked with someone like Rofter here or Rob Connolly on Balbo and, you know, that are very immersive and, you know, you really get a chance to explore things and take risks and make a few changes, it, it, you know, it's just more of a factory level, um, a factory process at that level. But, you know, it works for those people and there's a huge industry in that. But And, and some people love that. But I guess for me, I realised that it probably wasn't something that connected with me um, like it does with other other friends so or other actors. And, you know, that's fine, each to their own. But I needed to go through that process to really fully understand that. Mm. Uh, it, it's funny. One of the things that started to come up in, in, uh, in this show is all around definitions and how we define things and... Um, is it? I think it's Tony Robbins that said something like, uh, "Nothing has any meaning except for the meaning that we give it." And mm. you know how we define success, particularly as creatives and artists, is so significant to how satisfied I think we feel with our craft yeah. and with what we do. Yeah, um, totally, totally agree. It's the um, yeah, Terence McKenna used to call it the felt presence of experience. So it's just like. You know that you can't you can't tell anyone else. It's it's up to you. It's your experience of a certain circumstance or moment, and it's only relative to you. And, and to try and then share it or whatnot, it's almost impossible because it, it works for you, and it might not work for someone else. Mm. 
So I guess, um, you know, starting out with your kind of definition, well, I certainly started out with my definition of success being make lots of films, become really well known as this kind of auteur filmmaker, and that's when I that's when I'll know and and you know be on late night with Conan O'Brien, which was a show back then. <laughs> and yeah. and you know that's kind of that's really evolved and shifted for me into you know through all of my experience and and the stuff that I've been so fortunate to do and and to experience to be now really about you know wanting to inspire inspire people to um, to uplift to help you know with a collective kind of uh, evolution or awaken and it all sounds very lofty and kind of fluffy duck um, <laughs> but you know to, to to kind of um move into that sort of less tangible success and more evolutionary i guess um what's your kind of take on on that well i mean i i, I would say now through experience that it's the key to happiness i think we're we're kind of starting to realize that the more altruistic you can be that you're going to be a happier person and, and certainly from me coming from an acting perspective and you know having done some good things and having 12 years of people kind of come up and say hey i love doing this or great performance i can unequivocally say that you know in the last year having four or five people come up a day and say you know i just cannot express what your film's done you know and how it's changed my family or my kids or my dad who was sick or whatever i mean that to me is kind of, um, you know, it's, it's everything. It's mind-blowing as an experience. And, and for Zoe and my wife and I, it's uh, very humbling and very beautiful and, and far surpasses anything that we've ever achieved in our lives before. And to think that that happened just from making a film that just happened to strike at a right chord and have a sense of, you know, hope and positivity to it that really connected with people, then, you know, for me that's been a huge lesson and, and will inform everything I do more, moving forward is that, you know, I, I often think that, you know, there's, there's probably, there's not enough time. I mean, we almost need everyone to get together and make a film that's got a, a really lovely purpose um, <laughs> because of where the planet's going at the moment, you know, that I, I'd love everyone to make a film about climate change or whatnot at the moment because we need urgent action. And I think so often we kind of can waste time in this sort of making entertainment and, and, and whatnot, which has its places, no doubt about that, but I think... Um, you know, in terms of some planetary things that we have to deal with at the moment, they're pretty pressing issues. And, um, you know, unless we turn them around quite quickly, uh, there's going to be no room for entertainment anyway. So, uh, you know, I guess that's the only thing I can speak from, from my experience is that I, it's been a really big wake up call to not just make a film for me, but the intention was always, how do we get this message out? How do we get it to kids? How do we make it fun and accessible and, you know, give people a bit of positivity when they're leaving the cinema? which, you know, I think all too often uh, I leave the cinema going, God, I just feel a bit hopeless and like there's nothing for humanity left. Um, and, I, and I guess we could have certainly done that with a film like ours and, you know, you could have made a very fear-based thing and, and, and you, people would have left thinking they can never eat anything again. But we were very, very, very cautious of that and, and wanted to people to, to leave inspired and go home and sort of empower themselves to make a change. So to kind of have some form of success, I guess, in that, um, you know, is very, very rewarding for me. And like I said, far, far more rewarding than anything I've, I've been given an accolade for in the past. Mm, the, the film you're referring to is that sugar film. Um, yeah. And it's something that kind of that started as this little brainchild that your wife was just, or I guess, was she your wife when you started working on it? 
No, no, she was very much um, just a potential girlfriend that I was desperately trying to, to right. woo. That's kind of that's how I um sw- switched to the healthy eating because she was such a healthy eater and I was a kind of coke swilling Marlboro light smoking actor back then and I just knew well I tried to impress her and eat some of the food she was preparing for me in the early days as men will often do as you can attest I'm sure mm. and uh, just started you know eating really good food and couldn't believe how different I felt and looked and whatnot so that's really where the very initial seed started but then I didn't think anything of it for three years and, and then had, had the opportunity to make a film and that's really where it started that I just thought if you did tell the story of sugar then it lent itself to such a great sort of cinematic palette of of colorful madness and Willy Wonka aesthetics and whatnot so that's really how that all started I I have heard a thank for a host of things probably especially around the subjects we've talked about before in terms of opening me up and you know being vulnerable and trusting and learning more about myself but um, one component of that was certainly the food aspect and how important it is to fuel our bodies and our minds um, with the right kind of ingredients Mm, and it is. It's it's a fantastic film and, and quite brilliantly um, executed. And I'd love to um, I'd love to hear if you're if you're happy to to share the kind of um, the evolution of that from kind of concept to completion. I mean, yeah, it was just basically I just won Tropfest and I was in India with Madman Productions and they were doing a film called Save Your Legs as an actor, which is about a group of cricketers that go to India. And um, one of the producers there sort of said, look, you know, do you have any aspirations to make a feature film? And, and I just noticed that there was a bit of press starting to come out about sugar and I had my own experience of it. So I kind of thought, well, you know, this would be something really good to make. And, and if you did it properly, you could really get it out to a large number of people in a very fun and accessible way. So that was really how it started. And then I, you know, I guess what I had in my office uh, a big poster on my wall. It was from Oscar Wilde. And it was, you know, if you want to tell people the truth, you got to make them laugh or they'll kill you. And I always thought <laughs> that really, really good when you're dealing with the sugar industry. And so... Yeah. And it was just right from the beginning, it was always a question of how do we do it differently? What's a convention that hasn't been used in documentaries before? Because I think, you know, I love docos, but, you know, the standard fare is there can be quite, um, you know, there's an earnestness to them. They're reverential. They can be serious. It's like you see a talking head, then you cut away to some footage. And, you know, we all kind of have got used to that. But I thought the people that need to see this film aren't going to go with that convention. You know, I didn't want it just to play at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night on SBS, which would have been great. But we needed to get this film to the people that needed to see it, which is, you know, commercial Australia. It's people that are going to Coles and Woolies that, you know, aren't in just that affluent set of eastern suburbs that kind of already get this message. It's people, you know, who need to see it. And, and I guess that's been the great thing for me is that, you know, whenever I go to those kind of areas, people, they're the ones that have seen the film. So it's, it has penetrated a, a level of the, of the culture, the quinoa curtain that I, I like to call. And it's actually got out there, which is a, a really great thing. But... Look, that's kind of how it started and it really was this evolutionary process, very organic process of, of, you know, really believing that we were trying to do the right thing and then people just coming on board and, you know, it had a really incredible flow to it right from the beginning um, just in terms of the process and the scientists that got involved and then Hugh Jackman and then Stephen Fry and even the way it was released and whatnot, it just... I don't know, sometimes you feel like the thing itself is kind of out of your control. You're just kind of lightly running along behind it and just giving it a a bit of a nudge, like (laughs) pushing a a supermarket trolley down an aisle very fast. You just give it a little nudge every now and again, but ultimately it's moving at its own speed. And 
I really got a sense of that. And sometimes I'd write things and even think, God, what, you know, where did that come from? And, you know, you know, I've, I've even read somewhere sometimes someone, I can't remember who it was talking about the arrogance of people thinking that their ideas are their own, that really all we're doing is tapping into this giant collective consciousness of information. And then you just happen to be someone that picks up a little story or frequency for that collective and, and you tell it. So I can certainly relate to that. There were, there were things sometimes that I, I just felt were beyond my control that needed to come out or bits of information or, or little, um, you know, I guess uh, synchronicities that led to certain connections with people uh, that were really quite magical sometimes. If you look back on it, you think, God, how did that happen? Um, but the fact that it did happen opened up a huge gateway that sort of led to lots of other things. So, um, you know, I think I'm... I'm it's a, again a big lesson I've got out of this of, of just how important it is to stay really open in the creative process and, and you want to get that left brain in and start to analyse and rationalise and you know overthink it but the important thing is just to stop sometimes and go and sit in the garden and just open yourself up get into that right brain and and let whatever needs to come in come in because that's often where the source of the true magic is mm. do, you, do you find yourself uh, at times ever kind of slipping back into that 21 year old boy who uh who was just kind of looking for validation <laughs> uh not really i mean i do know sometimes like in very small ways i've, I've noticed a couple of times and it, it's mainly i found when i um i used to, I would, you know i never would have been able to make this film even three years ago in terms of or maybe five years ago of putting it out on social media and the level of you know vitriol that you get especially in the food space mm. but i've been kind of surprised how well, I've been able to handle it and adjust to it, but there are certainly there are certain triggers that people say sometimes, and I think, wow, that's yeah, there's a really old pattern there because I've really reacted to that. I won't write back; I'll just kind of, you know, take a few deep breaths. But feel the you know, rage, feel the rage, and 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 I guess in a way, I'm kind of thankful for that. We're very careful about. I think I've only blocked one person in our entire history, and there are other people that block people all the time. But I often find that they've got something for me. Like even if mm. I have a bit of a discussion with someone, if I look back and I really look at what they're saying and think and tune in and think, well, is there something they can actually offer me here? Uh, invariably, it is, there is. There's one or two things that I thought, yep, I could do that a bit better or I probably didn't handle that properly or I could have done that. You know, and I think that's, you know, when you're really open to that stuff, um, it can be terrific. So uh, like I said, I would have probably run from that a few years ago and found it too hard, but now I've got to a position where I can, you know, use it to, to, to only strengthen what I'm trying to do. Mm. Do you, do you have um, any kind of, I guess, meditative or um, or other sort of practices that kind of help you stay grounded in those moments? Look, I uh, I've sort of had a really interesting affair with with meditation over the years. I, I sort of did vipassana, which is the ten day retreat, when I was very young, like in my early twenties, and um, then sort of experienced and tried all sorts of different methods, and I really. When I do it, it completely changes my life. Like I'm someone, I am very sensitive, um, as you can see in the film, to substances, but also to meditation. When I do stop and allow myself just 10 minutes a day, um, my life completely changes. But um, like most people, I, I find it hard to sort of, you know, stick to it. I'm very good every now and again, but then there's just so much going on. There's so mm. many distractions and we've got a young daughter now and, and I, I almost feel guilty about taking away 10 minutes because I'm so busy doing other things that any spare minutes I've got, I want to go and just connect with her. And in a lot of ways, you know, children are fantastic meditation tools because <laughs> you you, have, you have to be present with them. And, and, you know, I know our daughter detects if I'm a bit distracted or my mind, she just 
not not interested dad but the minute i'm really there with her and present and playing you know we're best buddies so you know she's kind of my meditation barometer i think and uh, for now but i you know i still do when i go on flights and stuff try and squeeze in a, a meditation because i I, I firstly notice at the absurd pace at which my brain <laughs> races. Yeah, I hear you. And then I am able just to sort of breathe through it. And, and, and then I notice even the way I interact with people online and the Facebook page and whatnot, I, it's completely different. So um, it is in my uh, to-do list for 2016 or for not <laughs> do, just to-be list. Yeah, um, to-be list. That's a good one. Practice, that's for sure. I like that, a to-be list. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, well, uh, you mentioned um, a bit earlier, uh, Zoe, your wife, yeah. or now wife. Um, I'd love to hear how you how you guys kind of met, and if there was a if there was a courting process. <laughs> oh, there was definitely a courting process. We met. I was actually doing Balabo in East Timor, and it was the last night that we were there, and it pretty much just been a group of you know unruly lads dressed in seventies gear um, for five weeks, and. On the last night, Zoe was there. Her father was um, actually living in Timor at the time and um, she was there with a friend. And they were just kind of, we'd come back to the hotel and this, this kind of two girls were in the foyer and you know none of us had seen a, a woman for five weeks and uh, let alone a tall, very attractive Western woman. And we just kind of hit it off and had a chat for about an hour, but she was with another guy. And so I kind of, you know, respected that. But in my heart, I, I completely knew. Like I had one of those moments where I was like, yep, that's the girl I'm going to be with for the rest of my life. So mm. I kind of um, then kind of spent the next couple of months just kind of, you know, I knew she was with someone. I just rung around and spoke to some friends about her. I think I might have Googled her a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> just done the necessary 20, 21st century stalking techniques that probably go on these days. Yeah. And then I, um, I've been away from Australia for a few years and some friends of mine said, oh, look, we're going, you know, we used to always go up to, to hire a house up in New South Wales, uh, northern New South Wales for, for Christmas and whatnot and New Year's Eve. And they said, oh, do you mind if this friend, this girl's always coming because, you know, we've made friends with her while you were away and I just couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, my God. So it was all kind of very serendipitous and went up there and uh, had this week together. But again, I because she had a boyfriend, I kind of spent the whole week trying to find fault with her and talk myself out of why I should be with her. And mm. <laughs> and then on the drive on the way home, she kind of just dropped the bomb and just said, oh, look, I've got a massive, massive crush on you. And I thought, oh, no, I've just convinced myself I don't like you. So I have to unravel all these, all these <laughs> things that I'm having. But yeah, just kind of went from there and we went on a date and then it's just been um, pretty spectacular ever since and I feel incredibly grateful. I mean, we've just, um, it's always a very radiant person. She's very open um, as, a, as a human being and um, very ethereal in a lot of ways and, and has really kind of brought that part out in me that was a little bit scared of that side of, you know, easy to get um, into that left brain we talked about before and get you know, as men like to do and control and be rational, but she's really encouraged me to crack open my heart and, and, and stay in that creative side. And, you know, I even notice it now if I have to travel a lot and I'm away for her, from her from, for too long a time, I really notice I start to go back to old habits. But Start um, armoring up and that sort of stuff? Sorry? Like armoring up and that sort of yeah, stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Not not staying open as, and as feeling safe and whatnot and, you know, um, uh, she really, yeah, absolutely brings out the best in me. And uh, so, you know, we've got a very, very, very beautiful relationship that, you know, we do constantly work on and go and see people and just make sure that we're, you know, getting a grease and oil change when we can because, of you know, the world is hectic these days and sometimes things build up. And I think, um, you know, not enough people feel comfortable to go and do that sometimes and get out those judgments or those little 
things you might have built up that you know really don't mean that much, but because you haven't said anything for six months, they can come out like a geyser. I think sometimes it's mm. good to go and see someone and just kind of share that and have someone that can hold that space in an objective way and kind of let you both reconnect and get close again. So, you know, we're very up for that and we, we like sort of doing those kind of things together. We went through Peru together. We've done Myahuasca in the Amazon together. And wow. Just, you know, we really are, um, you know, a very curious couple in that sense <laughs> and, and to, to pursue all there is to this uh, wonderful experience that we have in, in life. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's funny as you're saying that I'm just sort of casting my mind over one of the biggest sort of lessons I've been taking from the last six months is about how much we create stories around relationships that may or may not be true and it's just kind yeah. of it's it's the kind of the meanings that we assign to certain actions or events that happen and yeah. how like you're saying in relationships those things may or may not be right or wrong um and i guess to kind of stay out of that story and to kind of um stay in a in a space of love and um and loving That's kindness it is i guess the the ultimate goal and to go and see people and seek assistance in that in some ways uh, in some circles maybe like there ha there must there has to be something fundamentally wrong in the relationship but actually <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's just like you say it's getting fine tune ups it's 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 That's right. sweeping the cobwebs away it's you know dealing with uh the reality of the human condition which is that we make shit mean shit that's not necessarily true. <laughs> that's right. And ever more than ever before, we're just bombarded by data and information. It's just this constant torrent of things to have to process and whatnot. And then you throw into, you know, children, then works, pressures and bills. I mean, you know, it's it's not conducive to just staying in your hearts, this planet at the moment. So, you know, we both think that it's really important to do that. And, you know, um, we even go when we're doing really well and go, well, you know, should we just go on, you know, you know, and I think that's, you know, that would be great if people could get their heads around that, um, you know, on the planet because I think, like you said, there is a stigma there that you you must be on the verge of breaking up or there's something really wrong if you go and see a counsellor. But, you know, there are people out there that aren't even counsellors. They're just kind of, you know, just someone to hold the space and can sit there that doesn't mm. really take either side or know you that well and you just kind of pour it out. And Zoe and I end up pissing ourselves laughing anyway because you, you <laughs> start saying it out loud you realize the absurdity of what you've been holding on to for six months you know but but you're so right in your little world and you you're sure that they're wrong and you're right so sometimes it's good to actually say it out loud to someone and, and realize what a tool you're being certainly mm. in my case <laughs> and i think that laughter is a really really high form of intimacy as well and can just you know really cement um relationship and i think i think the that your relationship in, in, in your in your film really comes across as being this really kind of beautiful um, team, um, the two people who are just so engaged with one another and, and just magnifying each other's kind of dreams and desires. And I suppose particularly from her side of it because of what you're putting yourself through in the film. Um, yeah. It's it's just yeah, it's really awesome to and, and inspiring to see. Um, no, she was, uh, you know, Zoe was quite heroic during that process because, you know, it was a, it was a big process to make that film. It was nearly nearly four years of making it, and and you know there were some really hard times, and especially doing the experiment and watching my body fall apart. And she was heavily pregnant while I was away, and you know there was a chance that the baby might come, and all these kind of factors. But she just held on to this kind of absolute 
faith and belief in me, which was kind of like, you know, I know why you're doing it. I understand that if you get it right, it's going to help lots of people. And so she completely backed me through the whole process and never once kind of got shitty. And there were times where, you know, she was looking purely looking after the baby and I was editing during the day and then doing the special effects at night and, you know, really missed that first nine months in ways, you know, um, that I could have done better. But she was just so incredibly supportive because she believed in, in, in the outcome of what I was trying to do. And, you know, I guess for both of us to see that there's, you know, there has been a modicum of success in that in that sense with the film has been really lovely because it's a, again, it feels like, you know, no one will ever quite know what we went through during that process. Yeah. And to get it out there, especially your first film, and it's incredibly ambitious and, and you know, there's the physical aspect of what I put myself through that, um, you know, I don't know that uh, if we hadn't have had such a strong foundation, we would have survived as a couple, but because we had all these tools in our kit bag i think we were very well equipped to sort of understand what was going on and constantly come outside it and kind of you know make sure that we were sticking together through it and, and letting go of stuff that was coming up and um yeah i, I so that ultimately made us much stronger and i didn't think that was possible mm. and it just happens to be the highest grossing aussie doco of all time <laughs> that's right so yeah that's that's the nice bonus is that you know I mean, sadly, you learn a lesson around how money works in this country and uh, it's, you know, people are frantically trying to develop a new system at the moment because even though you're the highest grossing, uh, I can tell you that the person that makes the film doesn't get the money. <laughs> uh, it's just the way the system is right now, but it is shifting because things are going online. But, yeah, look, the film's in, you know, 35 different countries now, the book's in 15 different languages around the world. So, you know, we did strike at the right time, I think, and with a message that was accessible and that delivered, you know, one of sort of positive positivity and and hope as opposed to fear and and whatnot and i think that's really why people have resonated with it so it certainly changed our lives in a lot of ways and um you know we we've learned so much and we're very grateful for the experiences we've had and, and like i said to be told on a daily basis that you've changed people's lives or saved their lives is um is not something that many people get to experience so we're incredibly humbled and grateful um, for that mm. what what was your uh, what was your first date with zoe once you finally got the date uh, we went to a, a, a little restaurant in Sydney, it was recommended, and then went down to the harbour and sat on the rocks uh, for about three hours. And there may have been some swimming involved at some point. I don't know, but there may have been some swimming. Swimming, you say? Swimming. <laughs> Fully clothed swimming. Doesn't everyone do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's actually what I have planned this afternoon once we're finished yeah, with this. Um, no, was... I thought that was a Melbourne thing, though. <laughs> no. No, it was a very, very nice first day. And uh, something that um, that kind of strikes me, as I said in the in your in your doco, and and just from speaking to you now, the the solidity of uh, of your relationship is um, is remarkable. And particularly, I think in the entertainment industry, something that I've spoken to people <laughs> about is the difficulty or otherwise of sustaining intimate and romantic relationships and Zoe's also an actor isn't she yeah that's right yeah I mean yeah absolutely that's you know I uh you know like I said I sort of definitely had that experience in my 20s of you know it was very hard to keep a relationship and you you're meeting a new leading lady every job and you're away together and getting fed and it's kind of romantic and you're getting picked up and you've got to pretend to have this chemistry and it's you know it's very easy to just kind of fall into this bubble and um you know there's not an actor friend I've got that hasn't experienced that at some time. But um, I guess the beauty of Zoe was that we sort of connected on such a different level that there was a real sort of 
sense of going deep very quickly, uh, especially in terms of really working out who we were and how we, you know, wanted to connect. And, you know, that involved a lot of painful times of letting go old habits and things to make sure that we were very strong with each other. And I think once you go through things like that as a couple, it's, it sort of takes it to a, another level. And so all that other stuff can almost seem a bit trivial sometimes. And I, I certainly feel that now that things I would have got swept up in years ago, I, I kind of laugh at myself at now and um, can observe it quite easily. So, you know, again, like I've alluded to many a time, it really has been a life changer meeting Zoe for a whole host of reasons. And, um, you know, I think she'd say the same, but um, we, we really do feel lucky that we've sort of, we found each other because it, it is rare and, um, you know, it takes a lot of work. It doesn't just happen. But um, when you kind of trust that there is a connection there, you know, it's there somewhere at a very deep level, then once you find it, it's, uh, it's pure gold. Pure gold, baby. Um, mm-hmm. And what's what's the experience of uh, being a father been like? <laughs> oh, it's uh, it's hard to put into words. Actually, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a whole new level that you can never really understand until you've done it. Um, that sense of unconditional love and and the, the protection and the the innocence that you witness every day and this little creature that wants to learn from you and is so open to the world and you want to make sure you steer in the right ways and let them have their experiences. It's just a, a daily kind of experience where I shake my head and, and often just catch myself staring at her or, you know, when she's asleep, just going, what, how, what, how, who is that? And how did it get here? And <laughs> it's, it's just this thing. And especially when it's, you know, with someone you love so much like Zoe, it's just like, we made this, this is an expression of our connection and, and who we are as people in one human form. And it's, it's just, yeah, it is miraculous. And, and I know it's a, you know, we're probably, she's only two, so we're still sort of in, in the honeymoon phase in a lot of ways. She's kind of starting to enter, enter the, uh, the tantrum zone or the three-nager is coming up soon. But um, for now, it's, uh, it's, it's very special. And, you know, we've, we were lucky enough to travel the world with the film last year and went away for five months all together as a family. And to even, you know, share those kind of the big cities of the world together as a family was very special. And, um, you know, the hope is to keep doing that. And as she gets older and asks more questions and, and we have other kids, hopefully it's, uh, yeah, it's um, all very good. It's, uh, I know I'm sounding like it's, it's all a bit Disney right now. We do have our moments and we throw shit and, and break stuff. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my question. That's the answer to my question. But, uh, but, you know, it's a learning experience at the same time. There, I get challenged every day by my daughter and, and question, you know, making me question how I see things and who I am and what I'm reacting to. But I think uh, that's, that's the beauty of them, if you can allow that, is that they are, they are there to also provide wonderful insight to you. It's not just about you teaching them stuff. Mm, yeah, I I think uh, look, I, I I don't have any children that I'm aware of, um, and <laughs> and uh, but my understanding of it is that it's actually the it's kind of the opposite relationship to what you think, where it's the the role of the child is actually to teach the parents more than the other way around. Yeah. Um, obviously that's not true in a literal sense. I don't think your child is going to teach you mathematics, but in terms of that return to unconditional love, which is something I think we've kind of been touching on as throughout this and that kind of opening of your heart, I think that's really the role of a, a big role that children play. Yeah, that's right. And you, um, you, you, you are reminded that of what at our essence, what loving 
incredible creatures we are as human beings and then a series of things probably come in over our life and we're shaped by certain things and you know things form and judgments and patterns of behavior and whatnot but just when you see a child at this age there's just uh, such a purity and, and wide-eyed innocence to it that it's um you know it's a great reminder that it's kind of within all of us you know and we've just all got different levels of things that have covered that up or whatnot but uh, there is a seed of it in everyone i think Mm, I, I agree. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know what your kind of take, we've spoken a lot about this kind of this idea of opening and reopening and um, unshackling yourself of the, I guess, the, um, the things that we learn as kids, whether, you know, based on our kind of socioeconomic upbringing and our parents' beliefs and our religious beliefs and all this sort of stuff do you think the meaning or do you think why we're here is to kind of return to this space where we're all in that kind of um, not, not fear-based space but a kind of loving awareness space? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's an enormous question that I don't think anyone has the answer to yet but I think that's – I certainly like to feel that that's what we're here for. I think there's a – you know, if that's my version of faith, then, yeah, that makes me feel comfortable. I certainly don't – think of it in a religious sense I think of it in a a returning to a collective consciousness or a oneness or whatever you want to call it and I've certainly had experiences of and glimpses of that through whether it's ayahuasca or other means or moments in my life where I've kind of had a I've, I've had a sneak under the veil and kind of been privy to this kind of magical sense of 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 something way beyond any of us but Look, at the same time, I think that it's, you know, that, that um, juxtaposition and, and difference is important as well. We, we need that. You know, I wouldn't want to just live in a completely sort of utopian, pure kind of world. I think it's important to have experiences that aren't quite that. And I, I think the great example is like the yin and yang. I think for at the moment, if you think of that black and white symbol, I think culture at the moment is probably predominantly black with a little bit of a white circle. But mm. I think if we can start to shift more towards that larger white circle with um, with the black, I think a smaller black, then I think we're going to see a bit more balance to the planet and to the way we treat each other and whatnot. But I certainly don't think that it should ever be pure white. Um, um, but certainly I think we can, um, I certainly do that in my life, is to try and head for, for more of that that openness and that heart-based stuff because I just find I'm, I'm a much happier person um, when I'm living like that and, and so are the people around me. They're reflecting that when I'm in that space. So, um, you know, I guess I probably spent a bit of time fighting that and then going the other way so much so that I thought I couldn't have any darkness. Everything had to be perfect and I think, you know, you, you eventually find an equilibrium and, and find your own personal point of what that balance is. But, um, yeah, I'm pretty pretty happy with mine at the moment and, uh yeah, it's just a nice way to, to, to live my life. Mm, it's funny how that, that resistance is really kind of the cause of a lot of suffering where, where you just kind of accept it, it just flows and it's gone pretty quickly. That's right. And I think uh, we talked about it before that the culture probably doesn't allow that. There are some things that are so deeply taboo in this culture that it, I kind of feel sad for some people because they're not ever allowed to express what they really feel or to even have a thought around something. There's not a safe environment for them to kind of be okay with it and move on and so they inevitably might suppress it and then it comes out in another way and that's usually when the damage is done so you know perhaps we'll get there one day when we have a truly understanding and supportive culture that can sort of um, help people more through things like that rather than wanting to incarcerate them or or vilify them and shun them from the tribe we might kind of welcome them a bit more Mm, we'll have to uh, remove this tall poppy issue first (laughs) 
<laughs> Cut down the tall poppy people. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was uh, what was ayahuasca like? Oh, again, it's very hard to very hard to put into into any kind of vocal uh, language. It doesn't feel like there is one for it yet. Um, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I mean, I I would I mean, I would urge anyone to to I absolutely loved it. But again, the conditions had to be. Um, were very important you know Zoe and I had spent two weeks in the Amazon we were with a very we went down a boat for three hours and lived in there in this eco hut and then we spent time with the shaman and we went through the whole ritual and the ceremony and the singing and the preparation of it and the setting the intention of it and it really felt not like we were doing you know a drug it felt like a healing ceremony and I, mm. I, I think you know unfortunately it gets bastardized and you can do it on your couch in Bondi these days you know <laughs> just with a few mates um, but I, I wouldn't recommend anyone doing it that way. I think if you are going to do it, I mean, you know, at the very least get into nature because, you know, that's the nature will talk to you in some form. But, uh, no, I, uh, it, it was just, a, again, one of those validating things where I'd read so much on an intellectual level that I had this experience that was so deeply profound and, and I was almost shown some things that I needed to see in my life. And Zoe was the same. She was kind of shown a range of things that you could never, ever, ever have kind of imagined would uh, come up in your wildest dreams in, in the sequence in the way they did and the timing of what they were uh, showing her in her own life. So, you know, no one can really explain it yet. I don't know what it is, but it was there was something very magical about it. And, um, you know, it's it's not something I would do probably regularly, but it's I think at the right time it is something I definitely do again um, because you really can sort of talk to it and, and ask questions and ask of it what you want. And that's deeply embedded in the in the in the Amazonian culture as well is that it's Dr. Ayahuasca you go in and you you ask what you want treated or healed in your life whether it's spiritual or relationships or work or financial whatever it is you can actually ask and then you'll get the answers and you just have to be ready for the answers because <laughs> sometimes they, they can be not what you want to hear but um yeah, it's it's incredible what your brain goes through and even the process of getting there and the resistance and what that comes up this real you know, clinging on of the ego of the brain that it wants to run the show. But um, once you do surrender that and, and let your heart take over, then uh, that's when the magic happens. Mm. Are you uh, are you familiar with uh, with Ramdas and his stuff? Yeah, yeah, all that. I mean, yeah, I, I, um, there's, I've seen many a good interview with him and Alan Watts and all those guys. I've been down that wormhole probably for the last ten years and, and find a lot of that very interesting. And, and um, I think more and more people are sort of starting to find that we're seeing such extremes in culture now of, of what we've created that more and more people are thinking this can't be what we're supposed to do. This can't be the way to go. And so they're seeking alternative paths and aspects and I think that's a wonderful thing I think um you know this stuff is not nearly as taboo to talk about as it probably was even 10 15 years ago and there's even more and more of it in the mainstream press and the word consciousness isn't kind of you know derided anymore people are starting to study it and accept it and I think that's just a wonderful thing and I'm very excited about what the world might look like in uh, 50 to 100 years from now mm. I kind of hope that there is uh not that I've done ayahuasca but I kind of as I'm listening to you talk about it I kind of get this sense that i don't want there to be an explanation for it i just want it to be no. something that remains mystical because there's well, so little that is mystical in today's society yeah well look i tell you what from from my experience and the people that have experiences you you'd you'd need a serious fucking science degree to work out what went on in that. <laughs> in the jungle, I can tell you if someone can decode that then they deserve a nobel peace prize i tell you yeah wow. so, um, yeah 
but yeah, look, everyone's everyone's is different. Everyone, you know. But again, I think the, you know you just have to be careful with that stuff. You know, you can it can be abused as any drug can, but if it's ritualized in the way that it was intended and it's been used for centuries, then it can be um, very life changing. Mm, I, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of a lot of things that are like that in life. Um, take sex as well. Like I've studied a bit of tantra, and it's it's a similar thing where it's actually in in the right circumstances it's not just a gratification or a momentary kind of release or relief or pleasure it's actually about connecting to a higher version of yourself through this act that's right and i think they're all the same whether it's tantra whether it's yoga whether it's meditation they're all you know ways they're they're expressed ways to get to the same thing you know and i think we're all just People have got their different mediums, but ultimately we're all kind of searching for the same thing and that sense of peace and oneness and something beyond ourselves. And, um, you know, I dare say some religions are exactly the same as that as well. So uh, I think Einstein said that one day um, the religion of the future will be a science religion and, and free of any dogma. It will just be a complete love of the universe and respect for us all being connected, you know, by the same atoms. And I, I, I always thought that's just a wonderful way to look at it. I think we're all getting there. But um, we've just got our various schisms at the moment, but uh, we'll eventually realise we're probably all searching for the same thing. Mm. What an awesome way to end this interview. <laughs> that was that was phenomenal. Thank you. I I, uh, I really really um, appreciate your time, Damon, and um, and I really encourage anyone who's listening to this who's not yet seen that sugar film to go and check it out. And I really wanted to say thank you for your work on that and for putting it out into the world. Oh, thanks, mate. Well, I, I just love that we didn't even talk. It's the, I love doing interviews where I don't have to talk about sugar because really, I mean, and you probably get it, now that we've had this chat, I don't think the film's really about sugar anyway. It's just mm. about trying to live your life in the most kind of, with the most vitality and, and you know, uh, that kind of sense of play and upbeat, you know, and I don't think eating shitty food does that for you. I think people are starting to realise when you eat well, you feel well, and then you kind of, you vibrated a, at a higher frequency that can um, make you live a better life. So really, that's kind of what the point of the film is. Mm. I do have um, I do have one last question that I ask every guest, uh, and that is, what do you think about sugar? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the question is, uh, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Um, probably uh, a daily dance-off in the lounge room with my daughter and wife, I think. Um, <laughs> Most days she asked me to put on a few of her favourite songs and um, we just dance around and she insists that I dance. And if I try to walk away, I get pulled back in. And so the sillier I dance, the better she laughs. And um, sadly, that's going to run out when she's about 14. But right now, I'm going to get it in. <laughs> you got another 12 years of it. That's right. And then I'll just be the weird daggy dad. That's all right. <laughs> I can be okay with that. You'll, and you'll pull her in to do the silly dancing. That's right. And I assume it will be salt and pepper that you're listening to. Oh, very good. Very good. Mm. There you go. There you go. Thanks right, so much mate. for doing this, Damon. Pleasure.